This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is James Salter. He has published poetry, essays, memoir, short stories, novels, and a book about food. He won the Penn Faulkner Award for his short story collection, Dust and Other Stories. He is a graduate of West Point, served 12 years in the Air Force, six of those as a fighter pilot. He was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 2000. His novels include A Sport and a Pastime, Light Years, Solo Faces, and his last novel, All That Is. This interview was done in November 2014. He died in June 2015. We began the interview talking about what made him want to write in the midst of his military life. He wrote his first book when he was still working as a fighter pilot. I suppose I'd had the idea of uh, writing for a long time. I mean, I wrote in high school, and then I even wrote uh, a little in college. I read, not extensively. I read the things they told you to read in school, plus some other books. The idea was latent in me, and uh, as I think I've said, I've written this. Uh, uh, after the, I, I was in the Korean War, afterwards I came back, and I uh, felt I had something to write about. I hadn't before that. I'd been writing, but it was rather shallow stuff. And so uh, I wrote about the war in a novel, and the novel was uh, published. And I had been an officer for, at that time, 12 years. And if I was, I had never made my mind up decisively about whether I was going to stay in or get out. People were talking about that all the time anyway. and at that point, I thought, well, here's, here's another path in life. If I'm going to take it ever, this is the time to take it. Did you have any fear? Because writing is certainly less secure if you talk about finances than the military, which is a regular paycheck. Huge, huge uh, apprehension about that. But it happened that... Uh, When the book was published almost simultaneously, there was a movie offer for it. I asked that the payments, which were modest, but uh, in those days enough to to half support you, $15,000 a year, I asked asked the the total $60,000 to be broken into four payments annually and i thought that will be enough to get me get me along for a while i want to go back to to your first novel because you only have a first novel once and when you had sat down to write it you were basically you know you were were you still serving in the military while you were writing yeah it? sure i was flying and so were you perplexed by how to do it or had you just were you using models how did you start Well, you learn to write by reading and by writing. I had written a novel before that, very poor, and I could see it was poor. So I'd made an attempt, 
And I mean, I can't explain it further than that. You say, I think I have the idea of this. In my own case, I knew what I might be able to write, but I didn't have the structure. I didn't know how it was going to begin and end and where the various elements of it fit in. Certain people, certain characters, events, descriptions, how to put them all together. I think that's what you mean by how, how do you do it. Well, of course, when you, as I say, when you read and then try to do it, you eventually learn how to do it. But in this particular case, one day, the whole thing appeared to me. Just thinking about it, it came into my came into mind, and I sat down and I hastily wrote what I had thought. When I say hastily, I mean perhaps one page scrawled of the sequence of things and what they meant and two or three essential points about it. And that was really the book. Now you sit down and uh, you fill that in, so to speak. You write that book. I had the outline and I knew what the contents were. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is James Salter. I wanted to ask you about something you said in an interview once. Here's the quote. You would be a fool to be excited by a sentence, and a paragraph is really not that much better, although sometimes you feel a certain sense of warmth having written a paragraph that seems to be close what you had hoped. So basically you're saying... You can't just write a a good sentence and be happy with yourself. Well, you can, but uh, I mean, you're a little dizzy if you do that. It's like standing in front of the mirror saying, aren't I something? Uh, You know, a story and a book are much more important than the sentences themselves. In fact, there are a lot of great books that are not well written and a lot of compelling, tremendously compelling things that are written in very ordinary, perfectly ordinary language. The strength isn't in the sentences, although I think style is very important. I only read for the pleasure of reading. Uh, When you start out, I think, you read for the excitement of it, new things, and you read to know things to learn things. Books are usually written by grown-ups or by writers who are somehow magical. They, they're telling you things that uh, you didn't understand and that nobody would tell you. But after a while, I think you pass into another phase as a reader. Uh, you know a lot yourself, and you're not reading really to find out things. You're really you're reading either for the distraction of it, the entertainment of it, or you're reading for the sheer pleasure of it, for listening to this voice, so to speak. It's a voice in your head, but it's prompted by the words on the page. And uh, a single sentence is really lost in all that. As a writer, 
I don't think you can spend too much time thinking about them. Although in short pieces, sometimes, the power of a certain sentence or sequence of them can be tremendous. In my mind, I sort of think of literature in three ways. Like there's three kinds of books. There's the books that are just plot. They're just action. There's the books that are just so lyrical. They're so beautiful. But when they have both, that's when I'm like rising out of my seat. Yeah, I'm a little suspicious of the lyrical part, but I understand it. But people say that about you. Yes, I don't, uh, because I don't think lyricism is as important as the other elements in writing. I don't want to have too much energy, so to speak, too much of the spectrum involved in lyricism. I mean, the opposite of that, naturally, is narrative itself. And then in between them, there's probably another element. I don't know uh, what to call it, but it's the soul of the book. It's the spirit of the book. It's the importance, the essence, the all those things. I think that that's really the most important part of it. And do you try to test your books in the final draft? Well, I don't know. You write and hope that you're writing the right thing. It's very hard to write, you know, in a formulaic way, saying this doesn't have enough spirit. I think I'll go off and write a little bit about, uh, I don't know. I I don't think you write that way exactly. You write, uh, the, the book begins to dictate to you what it should be or where it should be. That's all going on in your mind at the same time. Or if not in your mind, some part of your, you know, being that is uh, telling you what to do. Not like a medium uh, moving your hand, but you're doing these things by instinct. Look, uh, we're talking. Talk is easy, easier for some people. But it comes instinctively. It takes no effort at all to talk. You're assa- it's being assembled without your, somehow without effort. But writing is not like that. Writing is very difficult because you're pressing much harder on the page, and it's not vanishing. It's not going away. What we're saying is going into the air, in this case being uh, preserved and cut up presumably, and then uh, assembled in a certain way. But it's much lighter than writing. If we were to put this on a page rather than broadcast it, it would be full of flaws. You wouldn't like it. I mean, you'd say, this is, this is too diffuse here. Or why are we talking about this in the middle of that? And so forth. I think you must recognize that if you're... Uh, a writer, uh, it's quite a different thing. As they say, a, a writer is someone for whom writing is very difficult. Has your process, either your thought going into books, the way you write, or the kind of books you write, in your mind, changed over your career? Not really. You only have a limited number of things deep down that you're interested in writing about. In fact, your whole life revolves around them in a way. And I don't think they change, although you may depart from them 
a little bit and write about something else. There are certain things that are fundamentally who you are and how you think about the world, how all this exists, really only exists through you and for you, and that you can't change that. You can't really step out. You can in your imagination. Say, I'm going to write a book from a woman's point of view. Well, I guess I might dare to try that. Not now, but uh, a little earlier. But I wouldn't feel terribly comfortable in doing it. It might be successful. But that wouldn't be what I was deeply interested in writing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is James Salter. You were a, a Jew in, in the military. Did you ever feel like an outsider because of that or anything else in your life? I know I've talked to other writers who, who one of the reasons they write is because they feel at some point in their life they were an outsider. Well, as a schoolboy, no. The, the social circle, so to speak, in which I existed as a boy, was Jewish, largely. And I had no personal feelings that were different than the general feeling, which was tentative in society. There was anti-Semitism then more than there, more than exists now. It was at the time of Hitler's rise. So, but, uh, and uh, down the street, I lived in uh, New York, well, lived in Manhattan. Down the street in Yorkville, that was a German uh, neighborhood. I mean, n- not a distinctly German neighborhood. They were collecting for German war relief in the lobbies of the German movie theaters there. And f- the German-American Bund, which was the big uniformed uh, Nazi, pro-Nazi group in America, had meetings uh, down the street. So it was, there was that element, the knowledge that you had enemies in the world, and also the knowledge that you were socially set apart from, from American, Christian-American life but not in any threatening way. In the Army, I felt it was not an issue. I don't know what people thought of me. I never felt it. I never felt hostility. When you decided to change your name, you were still in the military and writing. And did you do that because you wanted these two separate identities? I was a regular officer. I was a West Pointer, in fact, which is a regular officer plus, and I was interested in writing something that uh, that world has no interest in. And uh, I didn't want that to interfere or to be an element of people's perception of me. I would say it was uh, like a minor vice that I wasn't particularly interested in having known, which was exactly the way I felt about it, and you often have vices that you're very pleased with, but you're not, you don't want to be known for. That was the status of it. So I was writing in secret, so to speak, 
not talking to anybody about I'm writing a book or I can't do that. I'm I'm working on something I'm writing. I never would I never dreamed one wouldn't dream of saying such a thing. Now the book was finished. That took about a year and a half or two years. And furthermore, it had been submitted and accepted and there was some enthusiasm about it. Uh, my agent, I had an agent, uh, knew who I was, of course, and I said, I want to publish it. I don't want to publish it under my own name. There were really a couple of reasons. One was that I didn't want, I hadn't decided to become a writer. And if I was doing this, I didn't want to be known, didn't want to have it recognized. I wanted the book to be admired, but as for myself, I wanted to be unknown. And that's the essential reason. I wrote the first book under a, an under a pseudonym, perfectly normal act, and I kept it, of course, for subsequent books. Uh, it, it, it never has been an issue, actually, until I stopped having two names and simply dropped my uh, given name, my family name, and uh, some people objected to that. I don't know why. Which is Horowitz. Yeah. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is James Salter. I was wondering if you could share with me from your life as a writer if you have a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you. If I went back and picked passages from books that uh, when I read them, I remembered them. And uh, Peter Cameron, who's a novelist and a writer, I was reading his blog the other day, and I noticed he has a whole section of his blog on books, book reviews. He begins it by saying, these began originally because I wanted to have something after I read a book that I knew I was going to forget entirely two days later. So your influences don't remain with you intact, but become part, I think, of what you generally admire in writing and what you feel might somehow be in the same area of writing that, that you are. And thinking back and thinking about that and looking up at the bookcase, I thought, my God, there are, there are many books up here that I could pick. But I just arbitrarily picked one that I liked a lot, the writing of which I liked, a writer who was known but not very well known and who I thought really exemplified that one thing I like in writing, which is absolutely a voice right away. You recognize it. You don't know why it is, but it immediately you see it's different. It has its power of attraction, and you can't figure out why. I mean, if you go back, you can analyze it, but as you read it for the first time, you're just taken in. That's really a gift. This is Gene uh, Reese. So here's a very melancholy writer, a very self-destructive writer, 
she always or frequently writes the same character and the same story. It's of a period that I, I'm always interested in, the 1920s and 1930s in France and England in, on the continent. And, uh, and she, in this particular case, she's come back to France having gone home to England and nothing worked out for her in England. She's a figure that uh, would be scorned today, that is to say a rather pathetic woman, a helpless woman, always penniless, but a very intelligent and a very likable, if you'll pass over her, her you know, self-pitying qualities. The book is uh, Good Morning, Midnight. It's 190 pages long, repetitious in the extreme, and absolutely, to my mind, fabulous. When I come out of the hotel next morning, a little old woman stops me and asks for money. I give her two francs. When she thanks me, she looks straight into my eyes with an ironical expression. As I go past the baker shop at the corner of the street, she comes out with a long loaf of bread, smiles at me, and waves gaily. I wave back. For a moment, I escape from myself. But she disappears along a side street, eating the loaf. And again, I start thinking about dyeing my hair. I pass the Italian restaurant. I pass Theodore's. It's a long way to the place I usually eat at. I hesitate, turn back, go in. I meant to avoid Theodore's because he might recognize me, because he might think I am changed, because he might say so. I sit down in a corner feeling uneasy. He hasn't changed at all. He looks across the room at me from behind the bar and half smiles. He has recognized me. Very unlikely. Besides, what if he has? What's it matter? They can't kill you, can they? Oh, can't they? Can't they, though? Today I must be very careful. Today I left my armor at home. So tell me just a little bit more about this particular passage, why you chose it. Well, it's deftly written. It's expertly written. It jumps from thing to thing, and you must make the jump with it. The phrasing, it goes from straight description of what she is doing to talking to herself. She says, they can't kill you, can they? Oh, can't they, though, can't they? So it's a different tone exactly. Now, it will not appeal to every reader because I think uh, she's too good for many readers. They're just not going to get it. And they're going to want more. They're going to want more explained. Her writing is rather Pinteresque. It's like Harold Pinter. You either accept that or you're saying, this is not exactly my kind of thing. And, of course, Jean Rees is constantly saying of the world, this is not my kind of thing. I'm lost here. I'm a victim here. Uh, also, there is never a big word in Jean Rees. It's written in fundamental 500-word English, and yet she manages to introduce a word 
now and then that is completely unexpected, and there is the pleasure of that. And how about if you can read something from what you wrote, and it could be something that you thought was hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or just something that you like. This is a book about publishing, editors. In it, there are a number of publishers, not only here in America, but foreign, because that aspect of publishing interested me and I thought was enviable. The fact that they meet one another, these publishers from different countries, they have a league. They have, I won't say a brotherhood, that would imply something more deep. They have a common interest, and frequently they are friends and even more. So I was writing about some foreign publishers, English, German, and I I had to create those because I don't know these people very well. One of them, the Swedish publisher, I took from a photograph and a description that a real Swedish publisher had given me of another publisher that he greatly admired. So there was some difficulty in writing it because it was, so to speak, secondhand. I wanted it to be real, but it is made up. And this is from your newest novel, All That Is. Yes, that's it. This passage you're going to read begins with a description of the editor, Bergeron's three marriages, and his appetite to continue to find new women in his life. And then it goes on to this section. One afternoon, he passed a shop window where a girl in her 20s in black fitted pants was arranging a dress dummy. She was aware of him standing there, but she did not look at him. He stood there longer than he wished. He could not take his eyes from her. She, not the shop girl, but someone like her, became his third wife. What the unseen part of their life was, who can say? Was she difficult? Or did she stand naked between his knees like the children of the patriarchs, her bare stomach, the swell of her hips. A certain unwanted coldness at his center kept him from real happiness, and though he married beautiful women, let us say, possessed them, it was never complete, and yet to live without them was unthinkable. The great danger, the great hunger of the past was for food. There was never enough food and the majority of people were undernourished or starving. But the new hunger was for sex. It was the same specter of famine without it. So where do you write? Well, in a variety of places. I write in the house, in various rooms. I've written, there's a cabin next to our house here. I've used it as studio. I've rented rooms. I've done a lot of writing in Aspen over the years much more than I would think. Uh, The majority of two or three books here. I rented a room at uh, the old Independence Hotel. I've uh, borrowed other rooms from people who were out of town and who let me use uh, a room in their house. It's varied. I've moved from place to place. 
What do you do if you want to get away from writing? It could be any number of things, but in fact, you never get completely away from it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my wife, in this case. Uh, she writes as well, and I trust her critical judgment. And how have you dealt with rejection? Well, that's a long way back. Uh, somehow I work through it. And what is your favorite word? Seething. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was James Salter. This interview was done in November 2014. He died in June 2015. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.